0: It's a pleasure to be with you all. Um, I definitely am happy to bring you warm greetings from Baltimore Bible Church. I can tell you that uh, you're, you're loved, well loved by uh, BBC, and uh, it's, it's been a real privilege for me and my family to have this uh, connection. Um, I remember even on my first visit, candidating visit, had the opportunity to meet with uh, Pastor Leek and a few of the other elders, and uh, just ever since that time, just been very thankful uh, for the church here. Um, in particular, uh, Pastor Leek has uh, just been very kind to me and my family, and uh, he just means a lot to me. Um, great example. He's a faithful shepherd, as, as you all know very well, a man of God and a a great example to to me and to many others. And so uh, I definitely feel uh, uh, an added weight, if you will, to the responsibility to to be uh, preaching in this pulpit where he has uh, served you all so faithfully for so many years. So I'd appreciate your prayers uh, for me as I seek to faithfully preach God's word to you again this morning. And the Title of, of my sermon this morning, my message, is, But Who Do You Say That I Am? And preaching from Psalm 110, so some of you might have thought, well, is that a typo? Because I'm pretty sure that's somewhere from the New Testament, and, uh, you know, Psalm 110 is in the Old Testament. But no, it's not, it's not a typo. That was intentional. And I, I hope to explain why I chose that title We live in a day when we are told that everyone's opinion and perspective are equally valid. It's an age of of relativism and many other isms could be added to that. When it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, there are many different and competing opinions and ideas about who he is. In the four Gospels, in fact, we see that this was even the case while Jesus was still walking the earth. There were a variety of opinions and ideas and theories about who this Jesus is, who he was. And in Matthew 16, 13, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is, referring to himself? And they gave him a number of responses. I'm sure most of you recall this. Some said John the Baptist, others, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. The, the disciples were reporting to Jesus these various views and opinions about who he was. But then Jesus turned up the heat a bit and made it more direct and personal Uh, to his disciples, and he said, But who do you say that I am? And truly, there is no greater question that must be faced and answered by every single individual, not only those in this church this morning, but throughout the world and throughout all history. And the sobering reality is that we must acknowledge that our own opinions, ideas, beliefs, and even our response to Jesus has ultimately no impact upon who he really is. Jesus Christ does not adapt or morph to our preferences or our ideas about him. And... Just to name a few of common opinions, categories, the culture's opinion, the university's opinion, the politician's opinions, the popular opinion, the politically correct opinion, and indeed your own personal opinion, have absolutely no impact on who Jesus Christ actually is, nor on what he has purposed and promised to do. And this morning, I want to remind us and challenge us once again with these questions, this question that comes from Christ himself. And also to remind you that although your opinions have no impact upon Christ, what you believe about and how you respond to Jesus Christ has eternal consequences, For your own soul, and again, for the soul of every individual, every individual needs to answer that question, who is Jesus Christ, and how will I respond to him? There is no more important question that faces us. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ or the Messiah? Who is the Son of Man? And as we're going to see in Psalm 110, we are given a comprehensive And an authoritative answer to this question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? So let's look together at Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And after reading this, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Psalm 110, starting in verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible Translation a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in the world that you have made. You've given us a witness within our own selves. And Lord, most clearly and most perfectly, you have revealed yourself to us through your word, both written and incarnate, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we just ask for your help, for understanding I pray that you would help me to be clear in communicating your truth. I pray, Lord, that Christ would be exalted and honored. I pray that each and every individual who hears the sound of my voice would honestly evaluate what they believe about Jesus Christ and how they have responded to him. And I pray that your spirit would do his great work of bringing conviction, bringing understanding, bringing encouragement. And Lord, even to those who are still spiritually dead, that he would bring new life as your word is preached. And we thank you for this opportunity and this privilege. And we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. I ask this all in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Well, this psalm, Psalm 110, uh, which you're, I'm sure, at least familiar with some of it, uh, it is one of the most, if not the most, quoted and alluded to Old Testament portions of Scripture in the New Testament. Um, Someone pointed out that it appears that it was uh, the authors of the New Testament, one of their favorite psalms, one of their favorite passages of Scripture, because they reference it again and again and again. This list is not exhaustive, but just to give you a sampling, unfortunately we won't be able to look at all of these passages of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 22, Matthew 26, Mark 12, Mark 14, Luke 20, Luke 22, Acts 2, Acts 5, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1, 5, 6, 7, and 10 all make references to this psalm or portions, verses of this psalm. And I'll let you know right up front that we will only be scratching the surface of all that could be said about this psalm, it really is deep. And as you begin to cross-reference to some of these other places that where it's quoted in the New Testament, it, it gets deeper and deeper still. But I want to remind you again that the question before us is Jesus' question, but who do you say that I am? And here... In Psalm 110, we are given clear and authoritative answers. And the first point uh, from the first three verses, uh, we'll uh, we'll be looking at this Psalm in in two major divisions, verses 1 through 3. We see that he is the conquering king. You could say he is the king of kings. So that is the first Revelation, the first answer that we receive to our question is that he is the conquering king. And then in the second portion of the psalm, verses 4 through 7, we will see that he is the eternal priest, or he is the everlasting priest. Um, So that is the summary of, of the outline of what we're going to be looking at in Psalm 110. Well, if you'd please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty two, I'm just gonna we're gonna take a look together at one of these places where Jesus references Psalm one ten. Matthew chapter twenty two, verse forty one. Matthew twenty two forty one, And this is in the context where uh, Jesus is being questioned, um, not honestly questioned, not because they really respected Jesus and they wanted to hear from him, um, but they were actually trying to trap him. Which, by the way, is a fool's errand. When you're trying to trap <laughs> God in the flesh, that's, that's not a good idea. And, and, and so it always failed and failed pretty majorly and they ended up being embarrassed to the point where we're told at the end of this section that no one was able to answer him a word nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. They, they eventually learned their lesson. So after Jesus finishes marvelously answering all of their attempts to, to trap him, showing his perfect wisdom. It says in verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I'll just say, I'm sure you probably know this, but you know, for these religious leaders like this was you know a very soft pitch like jesus come on like this is this is well known fact this is easy he's the son of david verse 43 he said to them then how does david in the spirit call him lord saying Psalm 110 verse 1 the lord said to my Lord, and let's just stop there for a moment. I just wanted to point out a few things here, just by way of observation, that this record of of Jesus as the conquering king, referencing back to Psalm 110, we're, we're first told here from Jesus himself that this was according to David's testimony. Because Jesus says in verse 43 of Matthew 22, How does David in the Spirit call him Lord? David, this is a testimony of David, but it's not only the testimony of David, and this gives us insight into the nature of Scripture and Revelation, because listen to what Jesus says. David in the Spirit. David says this in the Spirit. could be translated by inspiration, but in another passage uh, cross-reference mark 12:36 in a similar way Jesus attributes David's words to the holy spirit so this testimony about who Christ is it is from the mouth of David yes but it is ultimately from the holy spirit working behind the scenes he is testifying to who this Christ is so again the going back to the scene here with the pharisees you know they think Jesus, like, why are you asking, this is a dumb question. He's the son of David, of course. But then Jesus presses them. How does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And it says, verse 46 no one was able to answer him a word. Jesus stumped them, embarrassed them, and demonstrated their lack of understanding. And no doubt they were confronted by the claims of Christ Himself and their rejection of him. And here Christ is showing them from the scriptures that they prided themselves in knowing and understanding so well that this was pointing to somebody much greater than a mere human heir to the throne. Because David here speaks of this individual as my Lord. Uh, So this, uh, let's, let's take a look back at Psalm 110 again. Psalm 110 verse 1. Again, David says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, I want you to take careful note. I'm sure this is familiar, just review for, for most of you. Uh, but if you notice, the translators have, have sought to help us, done us a favor by the, the words, the two words, Lord, they're, they're both spelled the same in English, right? L-O-R-D. But if you'll notice, the first, Lord, is in all caps, a reference to the Hebrew name, which has been pronounced in various ways, but uh, most likely pronounced Yahweh. Um, honestly, the pronunciation is, is not the most important thing, but it is important to know the distinction between these different names for God. The second name, their Lord, is the Hebrew Adon. It's actually not the Adonai, which is common. And Adon can be a reference to a actually a human Uh, Lord or Master, or it can be a reference to God. Um, I believe that it's clear from the context of this passage um, and even the way Jesus used it in the New Testament and other New Testament writers used it, that this is a reference to much more than a mere human Lord, uh, that this is a reference to God. And also, as we'll see in a little bit down in verse 5, that same word, Same Hebrew word, Adon, is used in verse 5 when it says the Lord is at your right hand. So again, pointing to much more than just a mere human king, a mere human master or Lord. One of the things that is challenging in this psalm is is keeping track of all the pronouns and trying to match them up with who who is referenced to who and even in just the different faithful commentators that I looked at, you, you could tell at times they're struggling, especially towards the end of the psalm, to identify you know which pro- pronoun goes with which member of the Godhead. But sometimes passages of scripture like this we can so easily take for granted and lose sight of, of just the grandeur and, and the wonder of what's taking place here. David, by the Holy Spirit, as a result of the revelation of the Holy Spirit to him and us as recipients of this word, we are actually listening in to a conversation between the Godhead. That Yahweh, God, and I'll just say a side note here, I'm going to be using names interchangeably, so I hope it it doesn't add to any confusion, but when I use the names Father, Yahweh, God, the first person of the Trinity, I'm referring all to the same person of the Godhead. Referenced here as the capital L, all caps, L-O-R-D. When I speak of Christ, Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, I'm referring all to the same individual with, with those terms as well. So hopefully that won't cause too much Uh, confusion or, or trouble in your mind. But again, just to point out the reality here that we are hearing a conversation between the Trinity that we would not know about unless the Holy Spirit had revealed this to us, given us this. So it is a precious revelation. And there's a command actually given here from God the Father to God the Son, the Messiah, the Christ. And he says, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. This is a place of of authority and power. This is a place of honor that is given to the Son. Turn with me, or you can just listen along if you want. Matthew 26, I want to show you something about the significance of this place. of, Of the right hand. Jesus, again, makes reference to this passage. Even as he was on trial... And the high priest, remember all the all the false accusations were coming against Jesus, trying to find something that would stick, trying to get their stories together, so that they could come up with a reason to put Jesus to death, which was difficult because he was perfectly innocent. He was perfectly righteous, so they had to make something up. In verse 63, it says, Well. Look at verse 62. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? Speaking to Jesus, What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64 Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And listen to the response, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. So Jesus, in this, right, in this reference of being at the right hand of power, is a reference and a claim to deity. And the religious leaders of his, of his day, they were tracking, they knew. And they said, that's blasphemy because they rejected Jesus' claims. Even though he clearly demonstrated through his works, his miracles, uh, his wonders, his signs, his, his teaching, his perfect life. That he was who he claimed to be, but of course, sadly, they rejected it. Uh turn back with to Psalm 110, please. And by the way, the other reference there in that in that section was to Daniel 7:13, referring to the coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the next thing that the Lord says, Yahweh says until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Of course, this is an image of complete and total victory over one's enemies, even though we might not use terminology like that. It's not too difficult to understand that, right? It translates pretty well into our understanding if if your enemies are made into your footstool, something you sit your feet on, uh, it's obviously a, a, a picture of, of dominance, of victory, conquering your enemies. And then... He says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. So the scepter being a symbol of his authority as the king. And another command comes here. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. In a passage of scripture, you might want to jot down Psalm 2, where it speaks uh, again of the The Messiah. And again, there's a conversation between the Father and the Son, the Son being the Messiah. And he talks about how he is going to rule and defeat and conquer and destroy all of his enemies. So Psalm 2 is is a helpful cross-reference. So we could see that this this testimony to who Jesus is as the conquering king Uh, That is according to David's testimony, according to the Holy Spirit's revelation, and according to these commands that are given from the Father. We also see it's according to the prophesied response of the people. Just notice in verse 3, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. And the second point that we want to look at we considering who is Jesus, what do you think, what do you say, what do you believe about Jesus, is that he is the eternal priest or he is the everlasting priest. And I'll just point out to you again that this is also according to David's testimony. We're still here in this Psalm of David. It's also according to the Holy Spirit's revelation in giving us this Psalm, this understanding And when we saw the way that Jesus used it and understood this psalm, and it is also according to the Father's or to Yahweh's declaration. Look what it says here in verse 4. The Lord, notice again, all caps, right? Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind here. The earlier picture that we were given of, the revelation we were given, was that this Messiah, this Christ, is the king. He's the conquering king. And yet, also here, maybe somewhat strangely enough to us, he's, he's identified and revealed as priest. Now, if you know your Old Testament history a little bit, you know that when a king in Israel tried to act like a priest, it didn't go well. And Uzziah, although he had a godly history, if you remember when he went in in pride and arrogance and tried to offer sacrifice, God struck him with leprosy. He was serious. God didn't play games around that. That was not permitted. There the, the kings were from the tribe of Judah, and the priests were from the li- tribes of, of Levi. But here, in this Christ and this Messiah, David's Lord, we, we were introduced to this other individual, Melchizedek. It's like, where, where did that come from? Well, we don't have time to look there, but if you want to jot down Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, that's where we're introduced to this individual. And he also. Now this was before Jacob. This is in the, in the time of Abraham. This is before the twelve tribes and, and Israel and the law, giving of the law and the setting up of the priesthood and the and the kings of Judah. But this this king, this king of Mel, this Melchizedek rather, he was both a king and a priest. He was a king and a priest. And I wish we had time to go into detail on that. We definitely don't. But I would point you to a perfect commentary <laughs> on this. And although we don't know the human author because it's from the book of Hebrews, uh, we know that it is a commentary, a perfect commentary written by the Holy Spirit and given to us in Hebrews chapter 5 through 10. And the, the writer of Hebrews actually goes into some detail about this Melchizedek and comparing the perfect priesthood of Christ to Melchizedek. and Christ, and Christ alone, David's Lord is the king of kings, and he is also the high priest. He is a priest forever. And the writer of Hebrews actually picks up on the significance of that, talks about he's able to save to the uttermost. And although that he offered himself one time as a sacrifice for sin, as the Lamb of God, remember, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was also and is also and remains the high priest. And we're told in Hebrews that he's interceding on our behalf. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us. Our Lord is both the King of Kings and our great eternal high priest. He rules and he reigns and he sympathizes and he intercedes as our high priest. And and take a look here at his exalted position in verse 5. This this is where it starts to get real tricky with with the titles of of Lord and and the pronouns. So uh, I'll tell you, I, I did my best, but... I will say that there's good and godly men who would interpret these slightly different. The, the, the challenge comes into, when you're looking at verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Who is the Lord in reference to? Now, at first glance, you might think, well, this is in reference again to David's Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. However, from my understanding and studies, it looks that the following verses where it's talking about the actions of this one who will shatter kings and will judge among the nations and shatter the chief men and on and on and on. That's all reference, I believe, to Christ, to the Messiah, to David's Lord, what he will do when he's ruling in the midst of his enemies, when he's conquering, when he's ruling as as the king of kings and the lord of lords. And so what I believe is taking place here in verse 5 is that the Lord, That same Hebrew word as in verse 1, Adon, is actually referring to God the Father. And that the one who is at your right hand, the your there, referring to the Messiah, to the Christ. So you see what I mean? It's sort of like a a flip. Um, And then he goes on to say, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath, referring to Messiah, referring to Christ. That the Lord, Yahweh, is at the right hand of the Messiah, supporting, uh, strengthening, honoring the Son as he goes and he goes about to take his rightful place as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I, I believe in understanding it this way, Um, It it shows even a greater demonstration that Christ is indeed God. Very God of very God, as the theologians would say. That he is the one who is going to go about this and that Yahweh is going to be strengthening him, honoring him at his right hand. And again, there is this reverse of positions as well, if I'm understanding this correctly. Because initially Yahweh says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. And now Yahweh is at Messiah's right hand as he goes about fulfilling his role as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And listen to these, One more thing actually about that is that I, I believe that at times in, in this passage and other places in scripture, there's an intentional overlapping and almost a blurring of the roles between the members of the Trinity, members of the Godhead. And if you remember Jesus, the way that he taught and spoke that I and the father are one, right? When you see me acting, you see the father. And so, in our understanding of, of what the scripture teaches about the Trinity, that there is the nature and the nature of the triune God. There is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it would make sense that there would be this overlapping of, of the, the workings of the di- different individuals within the Godhead. So um, we can talk more about that after, afterwards if you want to, but um, I need to move on. I do also believe it's reminiscent of the images that we see in the book of Revelation when we're spoken of he who sits on the throne, right? God the Father and the Lamb, right? You keep seeing these two closely connected together. one who sits on the throne and the Lamb again and again and again. And according to this prophesied triumph of of this king, this king-priest over his enemies, there are six actions that are identified here that the Messiah will take. And it speaks of his complete and total dominance and victory over his enemies. Just listen to them as I read them. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Reminds me again of Psalm 2 where it talks about him, you know, shattering his enemies, right? With a... With a uh, I'm just going to read it. It says, uh, Psalm 2.9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Speaking of the Messiah's victory. You shall shatter them like earthenware, like a, like a clay vessel, like an iron rod striking a clay pot, right? Shattering it to pieces. No, no chance of that surviving. He will judge among the nations. And then very sobering language here. He will fill them with corpses. That's very graphic language. Speaking of anyone who would dare to stand up against this king is going to be slain. And then it says in verse, end of verse six, he will shatter the chief men over a broad city. Now, an interesting note here that this word translated chief men can also be translated as head over, head. Now, why am I making a point of that? If you notice in the verse, end of verse seven, verse seven says, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Again, speaking of the Messiah, therefore he will lift up his head. So there's a play on words that's taking place here. He is going to shatter the head of this, individual, this 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 rebel, and he will lift up his head. The Messiah will lift up his head after totally defeating his enemies. And there has been, um, I'd say, a, a pretty significant, credible argument connecting Psalm 110 actually to Hebrews, I'm sorry, to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, where we're the, the prophecy that was first given of the gospel, right? That the, the serpent would strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but that individual pointing to the Christ would crush the serpent's head. And so there are, uh, there, I can't go into all the details, but there is language, similarities, and words, and grammar that would point us to this being a fulfillment of what God had spoken to Adam and Eve back there in the Garden of Eden and that this Christ, this Messiah, this Savior would come and he would crush the head of his enemy and our enemy. And then there, the end there, the final verse is really just pointing to this idea of, you know, he will drink from the brook by the waves, wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. Just a, a picture of, of his Messiah's victory over his enemies, uh, potentially, Uh, you know, if if there's an athlete, someone who completes in a great race and wins, and, you know, they have a refreshing drink at the end, symbolizing that they've they've completed, they're done. So that that could be the picture here. But in conclusion, I I wanted to point you back to the question that I began with at the beginning of the sermon that we've been considering all throughout the question that jesus asked his disciples but who do you say that i am and when jesus asked his disciples that question an answer was given as i'm sure you know and not just any answer not just a possibility but actually the correct answer and matthew 16:16 16, 16, we're told this simon peter answered you are the christ the son of Of the living God. That was the correct answer. And in response to this answer, Jesus declared, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the correct answer to Jesus' question. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. Every person will and must answer this question. And there is only one right answer. And the answer is not up for discussion or debate or a popularity vote. What you believe about Jesus and your corresponding response to him will determine your eternal destiny. But it has no effect whatsoever on who Jesus is, his power, his authority, his dominion, his coming reign, his right to judge you for your sin and your rebellion against him. At the end of John's gospel in John 20, 30 to 31, the Holy Spirit revealed his purpose for John's gospel. I'm sure a familiar verse. He said this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And I don't know all of you, I don't know most of you in this room, but God knows your heart. And you will be condemned or forgiven based on your belief in and response to Jesus Christ. Your response to him will determine your eternal destiny. John 3, 16 to 18, don't let the familiarity of these words rob you of the significance of them. For God... So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then in verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Sounds like Psalm 110 a little bit. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. First Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever Will call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. So I ask you, what is your response to Jesus this morning? Who do you say that he is? And how have you responded to him? And I do want to mention just a few reminders to those of you in this room, which I hope would, would be all who have already trusted in Christ to be your king, your savior, your high priest, those of you who gladly confess and proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Here are some reminders, some takeaways. Give all glory to God for your salvation. Remember that it was God who opened your eyes and gave you new life and enabled you to see and believe who Jesus truly is. He enabled you to repent and believe. Even as Simon, Peter, remember Jesus said, flesh and blood do not reveal to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's true of every one of you who is a believer. God has had mercy on you. Remember that your Savior is the great King. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is worthy of all of our love and service and devotion and everything. Remember Revelation. Worthy are you, right? Just adding one thing after another, after another. He's worthy. He's worthy. Remember that your Savior is the great high priest. He has provided for your salvation with his own precious blood. And he is presently interceding on your behalf and my behalf in heaven at the Father's right hand. Remember that that your king priest is coming again. And that's even what I believe the end of Psalm 110 there is pointing to, that when Christ comes in his earthly kingdom to rule and to reign and defeat all of his enemies. He's coming again and he is going to rule and reign on this earth. And thankfully, and I hope I can get an amen on this, he will not be holding an election. But (laughs) he is coming to conquer and to rule and to reign over his earth. And here's the amazing thing, we will reign with him. May the reminder of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he will do give you great hope and joy in the midst of whatever you're dealing with this morning. Whatever challenges, whatever overwhelming circumstances that you find yourself in this morning, remember who Christ is. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the great High Priest. And he is coming again. And lastly, remember that everyone else is going to one day stand before Jesus Christ, the King Priest, the Son of the Living God. And we must tell them who Jesus is and how they must respond to him. Let's close out our time in prayer together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would increase our understanding of what a great and awesome God you are. Forgive us for our thoughts and our worship that is not worthy of you. Forgive us for the many times that we live in ways that are not worthy of you, of speech that is not worthy of you. Lord, you are the great king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you for your great salvation. We thank you that you are our great high priest. We thank you that you are coming again someday soon to rule and to reign, to take your rightful place on the throne as the king of this world. We pray that you would help us to gladly bow the knee even today. I pray for any here that don't yet know you as their Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would fill, fill them with, with a fear and, and, and anxiety and t- a trouble in their souls and in their minds. Lord, that you might have mercy upon them and save them from their sins. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.